Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 38, Igneous Rock Classification. Thanks for listening. I guess we could call it Igneous Rock Identification, because this is Geology 101 Lab, and we're doing another one of these little spiels that I do in lab regularly before the lab begins. And uh, even though you can't see the rocks, even though you won't be working with the rocks uh, uh, in front of you, um, maybe this will be helpful to you, podcast listener, dear podcast listener. And also, uh, hey, you central kid who missed uh, the lab and you've been told to go listen to this before you try to do the lab on your own, good luck. All right. So that was condescending. Doesn't feel right. We move on. So we've done two of these before in the podcast series, correct? We did kind of a basic rock ID uh, deal, and let me review a couple of very quick points from that. Uh, From our first crack at rock ID, all we were shooting for was identifying igneous sedimentary metamorphic rocks. Do you remember how we did that? Um, Very, very basic. If we found a fossil in the rock, we know it's a sedimentary rock. If we find fresh sparkly minerals... Uh, when we crack the rock open and look at them carefully, you know, we rotate the rock around and we can see these flashes of light, uh, then we know those are what we call fresh minerals, and the fresh minerals are either in an igneous or, a, or a, excuse me, an igneous or a metamorphic rock. And the difference then is that, remember, uh, if the fresh minerals are randomly arranged in the rock, that means it's an igneous rock. If the fresh minerals in the rock are organized somehow in big bands or layers then that's a metamorphic rock because of the high pressures involved. Okay, then the next podcast episode, we talked about mineral identification. Actually, now that I think about it, I think both of those were in the same episode. Whatever. Uh, The next movement, in other words, in this little uh, performance was the idea that um, we need to know how to identify some of the minerals inside of the rock. It's not just good enough to call it a fresh mineral. We need to know what kind of mineral it is. Do you recall? So then we said, well, all right, so if it's a black mineral, the thing in, in our world is either going to be biotite mica, that's a black mineral, or hornblende, that's a black mineral. The difference between the two is the cleavage information. If you're lost already, go back to that episode and listen. Um, if there were a couple pink, if there were pink minerals inside, the thing with those mineral specks were either ri- uh, rose quartz or potassium feldspar. If you found some gray mineral specks inside of your rock, the gray mineral was either smoky quartz or plagioclase feldspar. That's kind of where we were, just talking about six common rock-forming minerals that are very, very helpful. And we're going to use that today with this Igneous Rock Identification Podcast episode. Shall we begin? Okay, we got a bunch of rocks in front of us. We know that they're all igneous, You can't believe they all have something in common. They have incredible differences in overall color, uh, weight. Some of them have a bunch of holes inside of them. Um, There's all sorts of differences between these igneous rock samples. But they're all igneous because they were all molten originally. Remember, that's what an igneous rock is. Very simply, you take a bunch of red-hot magma, you cool it off, you got an igneous rock, man. But of course, there's a couple of variables here. Are we cooling the magma off in the earth? Are we cooling the magma off 
after the magma comes out of a volcano during an eruption. We call that a lava flow, don't we? Um, also, where is our magma? Is it in the middle of a continent? Is it at the edge of a continent? Is it uh, in the ocean? Um, there's going to be different chemistries involved. And we've actually had, uh, early on in this podcast series, uh, a couple of lectures on the chemistries and the different kinds of volcanoes and things like that. But today I assume you have that context and we go right to the, uh, the, the task at hand. I've got a bunch of igneous rocks on my lab bench in front of me. I've got to figure out which ones are granite, which ones are rhyolites, etc. Okay, well, it's a two-step process the way that we teach it in Geology 101 Lab at Central Washington University. Step one, take a look, pick one of the rocks, <laughs> hold it in front of your face, study it carefully. That's not good enough. We got to go get a hand lens, uh, like a magnifying glass. So we got a bunch of those over at the, the edge of the lab table. Um, go grab a couple of hand lenses, share them with your little working group. Okay, now you guys really get, get down and dirty now, okay? Really get this thing. You can hold your hand lens in one hand. You can hold the rock in the other. Uh, even that is kind of a, a, a skill to be acquired because if you've got kind of a shaky hand, then you can't really see the minerals very well. What you're doing is you're using your magnifying glass to magnify those small mineral specks that are inside of your igneous rock. We need that information to do this identifying of igneous rock uh, task. And so to get rid of the shakiness, you might actually like anchor your uh, magnifying glass hand. We call it a hand lens. I'll just call it hand lens. So you take your hand lens hand and you basically just kind of anchor it to your other hand, which is holding the rock. So both hands are kind of in contact with each other. And then both of those hands with the hand lens are coming right up to your eye. I know you don't look cool when you do that. But if you're trying to thread a needle by you know, holding your head back and having your rock out at, at uh, arm's length, um, that's going to look um, more stupider. Look that one up. Google that. More stupider. Ridiculous. All right. So we need to look, we need to magnify those minerals. Okay, what is the first step? The first step is making a call on the texture of the igneous rock. Now, texture is not what it sounds like. Texture for igneous rocks is not bumpy or smooth. Texture for igneous rocks means what are the size of the minerals? And we have three choices here. We're going to try to minimize buzzwords as much as we can, but in this case, we've got to use the buzzwords. Does a my igneous rock have a phanaritic texture, a porphyritic texture, or an aphanitic texture? I don't think I'm going to be cumbersome enough to spell those words for you necessarily. Maybe you can Google those texture terms for an igneous rock online. You can find those words pretty easily. Phaneritic is, starts with a PH, by the way. So let's use those terms. Those are your three choices, and that is the first step to calling this igneous rock by a proper name. Phaneritic texture means all of the minerals are visible, 100% mi visible minerals inside of that rock. I can see every mineral. Oh, God, there's some smoky quartz. There's some potassium feldspar. There's some biotype mica, etc. The opposite of phanaritic texture, where we can see all of the minerals with our hand lens, is aphanitic, A-P-H, anitic. 
That means I can't see any of the minerals. The minerals are 100% invisible to me. Even using my hand lens, I can't see the minerals. They're microscopic. They're there. I'm holding a rock. The rock is made out of minerals, but the, min the minerals are microscopic. They're teeny tiny. They're too small to observe with the naked eye. And then the third choice is porphyritic, a porphyritic texture of an igneous rock. Now, don't get confused, please. These are not the names of the igneous rocks. We're just doing the first step. We're just trying to describe the size of the minerals in this igneous rock. With me? Good. Porphyritic means we have both visible and invisible minerals in the same rock. Okay? The analogy I use is a chocolate chip cookie. Porphyritic textures are like chocolate chip cookies. I can see the chocolate chips. I can't see the grains of sugar, the vanilla, the butter, and everything else. That's all mixed together in kind of a microscopic background, or a matrix, for instance, or a ground mass. We have names, well, all these crazy names for things. Okay, that's the hardest part of this episode, developing an eye for texture. And some, it sounds pretty easy. I can see all the minerals. I can see none of the minerals. I can see some of the minerals. But um, it takes practice because there's minerals of different colors and different looks. So we, that's, that's the first step. Uh, short side note, that texture call tells us very specifically and directly about the cooling history of the magma. Do you remember this? Or are you aware of this? If you have a phanoritic texture, 100% visible minerals, that means the magma cooled slowly in the magma chamber, underground, in the dark. Phanoritic texture formed in a magma chamber underneath a volcano. Aphanitic texture, only possible if we cool the minerals quickly, and that usually happens, almost always happens, uh, on the surface of the earth after an eruption and the lava is flowing over the surface of the ground. So aphanitic texture means lava flow on the surface. Phanoritic texture means magma chamber rock down below in the earth. And uh, so it's, it's a question of how fast or how slow are we cooling. Here's the main message of this whole episode. Ready? The bigger the minerals in igneous rock, the slower the cooling. The smaller the minerals in an igneous rock, the faster the cooling. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. You can do it in kindergarten. Oh, this mineral has this rock has a bunch of big minerals inside. This thing cooled very slowly underground. I can't see any minerals in this igneous rock. In other words, an aphanitic texture. Cooled on the surface. Fast versus coal. It's still unclear to me exactly how fast is fast and how cold is co uh, how slow is slow. I mean, how fast is fast is pretty obvious. We've got observations now, centuries of observations about how you can cool magma in, in a few seconds or a few minutes or maybe a few days. But the real question to me and maybe to many is how slow is slow? Can you, can you form a phanoritic texture over the course of what is slow? We're going to cool the magma in a month? In a year, in a decade, in a century, in a millennia, in a million years? I'm not sure we really know the answer to that. And if we do, I'm out of it. Okay, so we haven't gotten to a name like granite yet, but we've done the hard part, making a call on texture. Now let's go to our igneous rock classification chart. What? 
Oh. Oh, this is an audio podcast? All right. Well, let me try to describe this chart that that I've used since day one of my teaching back in the mid-80s. Here we go. We got six boxes in front of us. I don't know. Can you draw this out for yourself right now? Uh, Three boxes in the top row, three boxes in the bottom row. Left to right, top boxes, basalt, andesite, rhyolite. Bottom row, three boxes, left to right, gabbro, diorite, granite. Those are the six igneous rock names that we're going to learn how to identify today. One more time, you got six boxes, top row, basalt, andesite, rhyolite. Right below that, gabbro, diorite, granite. Or saying it a different way, we've got the two boxes on the left, basalt upstairs, granite downstairs. Basalt upstairs, gabbro downstairs. On the right side, rhyolite upstairs, granite downstairs. Got it? In the middle, andesite upstairs, diorite downstairs. Now, the upstairs downstairs is a key part of this because we've organized these boxes by texture. The top row, basalt, andesite, rhyolite, those are aphanitic textures, meaning those are lavas after volcanoes erupt onto the surface. The bottom three guys, gabbro, diorite, granite, those are plutonic igneous rocks, meaning those, those are the ones that have the phaneritic texture, meaning they cooled slowly, and they've got nice, big, beautiful minerals inside of them. Those are the magma chamber rocks. So the three boxes above in your table, volcanic, three boxes below, plutonic, meaning magma chamber rocks. Additionally, if we look at our uh, box pairs left to right, the basalt gabbro guys have low silica, 45% silica. The middle two boxes, 60% silica. The right two boxes, 75% silica. If that doesn't work for you, you got some homework to do. Go back to uh, some of the uh, volcano podcast episodes a while back. Okay, so we've got our rock that we're holding. We've decided it's a phaneritic texture, let's say. The second step, remember the first step was just calling the texture of the igneous rock. The second and final step is looking for a key mineral. So here's where our last episode of of, uh, ID stuff comes through. We know how to identify minerals now. We know how to use our hand lens to magnify it, look very carefully, look for the flashes of mirror uh, reflection, if you recall, cleavage planes, things like that. And we're basically looking for baby versions of these big crystals that we were looking at last time. So let me cut to the chase. Do you find some smoky quartz, which is going to look gray and glassy, kind of gray glassy blobs in igneous rocks? That's what smoky quartz, the mineral smoky quartz looks like in igneous rocks. If you can find that smoky quartz, you're on the right side of your chart. You're either in rhyolite or granite, depending on the texture, smoky quartz. You feeling me? How about potassium feldspar? That was the pinkish feldspar that had cleavage, had reflective surfaces. Same idea. If you find potassium feldspar in your igneous rock, you're way on the right. You're 75% silica magma. You either have a rhyolite or a granite, depending on the texture. And we're... 
screw that. We, we just decided we have a phanerytic texture. So you tell me. You have smoky quartz, potassium feldspar in a phanerytic igneous rock. What's the name of the rock? Correct. Granite. Phanerytic texture. In other words, you're downstairs in the chart with either excuse me, potassium feldspar or smoky quartz in the rock. Great. You, you, you might have either or smoky quartz or potassium feldspar. You might have both. That puts you on the right side of the chart. Now, quick comment. What if you have a porphyritic texture? By the way, how do porphyritic textures even form? How do you get uh, visible and invisible minerals forming in the same rock? And the answer is you start to cool the magma slowly underground. You form the chocolate chips. You form the nice big visible minerals. But before we create a phanerytic texture, before we create this rock with nothing but big beautiful minerals, we have an eruption. And the stuff coming out of the volcano has big minerals in it, big minerals that form slowly underground. But the invisible mineral material is going to cool quickly around those big crystals. And that's how we can get both visible and invisible minerals in the same rock, a porphyritic texture. In our lab, we're going to reuse this rule. If you have a porphyritic texture... Again, that means you've got visible and invisible in the same rock. We're going to go up in our chart. So in the example I just gave, you can find some smoky quartz. You can find some potassium feldspar, but it's a porphyritic texture. That means you're kind of on the fence, doesn't it? You're kind of on the fence between the top row and the bottom row of the chart. We want to go up in the chart. You would have a porphyritic rhyolite, in other words. Okay, moving on. In the middle of the chart... We have andesite upstairs and diorite downstairs, correct? Andesite is the volcanic lava. Diorite is the magma chamber rock that forms uh, slowly underground in the dark underneath that volcano. We're not looking for smoky quartz now or potassium feldspar because we're in the middle of the chart. We're with 60% silica magma, not the 75 so it's not possible, in other words, it's not possible for us in this lab to find smoky quartz or potassium feldspar in andesite or diorite. Instead, the key mineral here is a mineral called hornblende that you might remember. Do you remember hornblende? What color is hornblende? The mineral. Correct. It's black. Cleavage, yes or no? Yes. Two cleavage planes at 60 degrees and 120. Okay, because of that cleavage information, hornblende, which is by far the most important mineral to learn how to identify in igneous rocks, hornblende in igneous rocks is going to look like little pine needles. You're going to look for black minerals that are long and skinny, like a pine needle. Slivers of hornblende. Our pet name is pine needles. So if you're struggling and I come over and say, what's going on? You have trouble with rock number seven or whatever. Uh, you're like, yeah, I'm, I don't even know what texture I've got. And I say, well, okay, let's make a call on texture. And then do you see any pine needles? And you go, yeah, I think I do. Use your hand lens. You got any pine needles? Yeah, I think I do. What mineral is that? Hornblende. Okay. Well, where are you in the chart then if you have hornblende? The answer is in the middle of the chart. Hornblende is commonly found in andesites and diorites. 
And if we have a phaneritic, uh, a phaneritic igneous rock with hornblende, that means it's diorite. If we have a porphyritic igneous rock with hornblende visible, then it's a porphyritic andesite, a lava rock. I don't want to belabor this, so let's continue with a couple final thoughts about igneous rocks. So how are you supposed to find a basalt or a gabbro then? That's on the left side of the chart, do you recall? Same idea, basalt and gabbro, same stuff, same minerals, but it's just a texture difference between the two. They're very difficult to identify, basalt and gabbro, because they're black. They're black rocks made out of black minerals. And if you have black on black on black, it's very difficult to distinguish what you have inside of that sample. So let's just do that. If it's a black rock, we know it's either basalt or gabbro. And then it's a question of looking carefully with your hand lens and deciding, do I have a phaneritic black rock? If I do, it's a gabbro. You'll look for kind of cleavage plane reflections. Those are pl uh, plagioclase feldspars that are actually very dark colored plagioclase feldspar minerals. Or if you've got a mineral that, uh, a black rock that's got just a few little um, olivine crystals, little olive green guys, then we know it's a basalt, for instance. So those are the six very common igneous rocks on planet Earth, and that's a, a, a very quick and crude way to describe how to make those calls. Now, is it that simple? Aren't there more than six igneous rock names? Of course there are. There's obsidian, there's dacite, there's rhyodacite, there's um, tonalites, there's all these other names that are really for geology 301 instead of geology 101. If you take a rocks and minerals class or a classic petrology class in a geology curriculum, you get into all the, the, the gritty detail there. That's not what we're doing here. This is geology 101 lab. So that's all I want to say about igneous rocks, I think. Let me pause for a second. Is that true? Yeah, we're not talking about ash. We're not talking about pyroclastic flows. We're not talking about lahars. Those are all in the world of igneous. But um, to me, these six igneous rocks, basalt, gabbro, same thing, andesite, diorite, same chemistry, rhyolite, gabbro, same blobs of magma, but the difference between those chemical pairs is the texture. That's all we want to do there for igneous rocks. I've got a couple minutes left, and so let me shoehorn in uh, very briefly uh, how we deal with sedimentary and metamorphic rocks in this lab as well. Again, there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of sedimentary rocks and metamorphic rock names that we could talk about. But instead, let's be very basic, especially because on our Geology 101 field trips, we're not going to see many sedimentary rocks or metamorphic rocks. In fact, I'm not even sure we're going to see any, or very few, I should say. So in the case of sedimentary rocks, remember what the basic idea is. There are fragments inside of those sedimentary rocks, right? All sedimentary rocks are composed of cemented fragments. And it's a question of the size of the fragments. If you have a sedimentary rock with sand-sized particles, we call it a wait for it, sandstone. <laughs> right. The fragments are sand-sized. We all know what sand grains look like at the beach or the desert, right? So in our lab, we want to know what kind of sandstone do we have. Do we have an arcosic sandstone or a quartz sandstone? Those are the two choices for us. 
And on one of the field trips up in Menashtash, we're going to see one of those sandstones. Arcosic sandstone or quartz sandstone, what's the difference? Well, they're both made out of sand. They both feel like sandpaper. But there's a couple key differences. A quartz sandstone is going to be 100% pure quartz in that sandstone. Every grain of sand will be the same mineral. It'll be some little smoky quartz. And because that sand, that sandstone is so clean, meaning it's so pure, meaning it's got the same mineral content in every sand grain, quartz, it's glued well together. Quartz sandstones usually are famously quite well cemented. They're kind of hard. They're kind of hard to break open. You certainly can't pull sand grains apart easily with your fingers if it's a quartz sandstone, typically. But if the sandstone, again, it feels like sandpaper, is crumbly, and you can easily kind of get those sand grains to fall apart, even though it's a sandstone. And if you look carefully at those sand grains, and you realize that it's not a pure sandstone, meaning it's a dirty sandstone, meaning that there's different kinds of sand that are glued together here. There's some quartz sand, there's some feldspar sand, there's some biotite sand, whatever. Then that's an arcosic sandstone. What I've just described is an arcosic sandstone, a dirty sandstone, a sandstone made out of different kinds of minerals, typically quite crumbly as a result. And you're like, who gives a damn what kind of sandstone it is? It's just a sandstone. Who cares? Well, each of these rocks, including each of these different kinds of sandstone, gives us a very specific uh, old environment that the sandstone is representing. And that's what we do on the Menashtash Ridge field trip. We've got this, arco oop, I gave it away. What the hell? There's an arcosic sandstone layer, a beautiful arcosic sandstone, a thousand feet above Ellensburg, Washington, on the top of this ridge called Menashtash Ridge. And it's a 15 million year old arcosic sandstone. And we look very carefully at that sandstone to try to reconstruct what central Washington was like 15 million years ago. And the details in that arcosic sandstone, including cross beds, including a pebble-rich layer, and the fact that we have these minerals of different kinds all being swept into this area gives us a very specific picture of a sluggish river system, a stream system flowing out of the mountains where the source rock was granite, for instance. That's very different than a quartz sandstone where we typically are at a beach where we're having a sifting and winnowing of all those different kinds of minerals and get rid of the, the, the smaller grains and the different kinds of grains and you're left with this very clean quartz sandstone. That's an example of how you would tease out very different stories of the past based on what kind of sandstone you have. The other sedimentary rock scene that we want to touch on briefly here in this episode, what if I have a sedimentary rock that's made of fragments that are too small to see? Even with my hand lens, I can't see anything inside of this sedimentary rock. What do I do? How can I... Is it all one kind of rock? It's not. Limestones and shales are very, very common sedimentary rocks, and they are very difficult to distinguish by the naked eye. Shale and limestone, both sedimentary, come in every color of the rainbow, can't memorize a certain look. How do you tell the difference? 
Well, even if you're a geologist in the field and you've got all the gadgets and you've got all the, the stuff in your backpack and the water and the PB&J and everything else, field geologists always have a little vial of acid. Insert joke. Vial of hydrochloric acid. It's weakly. Uh, it's, it's not strong. It's been diluted by water, maybe 15 parts water to one part acid, but it's, it's, it's HCl nonetheless. Why do geologists in the field have those? Why, do, why are there little vials of HCl acid in the lab room here? It's the best way to tell the difference between shale and limestone. It's, many times it's the only way to tell the difference. You take one little drop of acid, ha ha, Take one little drop of HCl on a shale and nothing will happen. You take that same little eyedropper of HCl, you put one drop on the limestone, there'll be a reaction. There'll be this cute little fizzing and popping and uh, Rice Krispies kind of a little show for you. And that's the chemistry reaction between the HCl and the calcium carbonate in the limestone. Again, why would you care if you have a limestone or a shale? The sedimentary rock that's fine particles that, that uh, fizz with acid versus don't fizz. Well, again, it's all about the stories, man. It's all about the stories. Limestone represents marine water. The only way to make limestone is to have a warm, shallow sea. Warm, marine water that's shallow enough where sunlight can penetrate to the bottom. We know that using uniformitarianism and understanding how limestones are formed. So if we have a limestone in the middle of the desert somewhere, we know that there was a warm, shallow sea there once upon a time. What's the evidence? The frickin' limestone. Shale can form in a warm, shallow sea environment, but also can form in freshwater. So that's one example of why you'd care about whether you had a limestone or a shale. Finally, in this episode, a couple quick words about metamorphic rocks. Because 101 lab students, you've got all three in this, this week. You've got igneous rocks, sedimentary rocks, metamorphic rocks. Most of our attention will be to the igneous rocks because Washington is loaded with igneous rocks compared to the others. But for the sense of completion, let's talk about metamorphic rocks briefly. Remember, all metamorphic rocks are rocks that have changed, each metamorphic rock used to have a former life called a protolith. So the protolith of gneiss is granite, for instance. The protolith of uh, slate is shale. The protolith of marble is limestone. You got an idea now what we're doing? We're looking at these complicated, changed metamorphic rocks. Let's break it down as simply as we can. Look at those metamorphic rocks. Look carefully with your hand lens. Do you see that the minerals are lined up parallel to each other, that they're organized? If you do, we call those foliations. Foliations in a metamorphic rock, how the minerals are arranged parallel to each other. It's more of a pressure thing than a temperature thing. In a 101 lab, there are typically four different kinds of metamorphic rocks, and that's true here too. The four foliated metamorphic rocks we have here, slate, phyllite, schist, gneiss. Nice, spelled G-N-E-I-S-S. -S. Bumper sticker time now. Slate, phyllite, schist, gneiss. Those are organized by increasing mineral size, meaning that all four of those rocks, slate, phyllite, schist, gneiss, 
have minerals that are fresh looking but organized into sheets or bands. But as we go slate, fillite, schist, nice, we increase the size of the minerals. So therefore, slate, which was used for old school chalkboards, nobody knows what I'm talking about now, uh, you can't see the minerals, but there's clear foliation. There's such nice, flat, smooth surfaces on those slates. Increase temperature and pressure. You're going to take a slate and convert it into a fillite. Now we've got a bit of a sheen to that metamorphic rock. It, it glistens just a little bit. almost looks like pottery that's been uh, baked a little bit more in the kiln. We still can't really see very well the minerals. Add more temperature and pressure to the foliated rock. Now we go from fillite into schist. We've crossed a threshold now. We can see visible minerals in schist, usually biotite and muscovite micas, sometimes some garnets, beautiful ruby red garnet minerals that show up in what's called a garnet schist. Add more temperature and pressure, you get a nice, a very easy metamorphic rock to identify. There's black and mineral, uh, black and white mineral uh, segregation or separation. So we have black mineral band, white mineral band, like zebra stripes. That's a metamorphic nice. Add more temperature and we melt the whole thing and it becomes an igneous rock and we're out of this discussion right now. Okay, four foliated metamorphic rocks, slate, fillite, schist, nice. Two oddballs to finish the episode. It is possible to be a metamorphic rock but not have foliations. I know that wasn't our original uh, message, but here's two exceptions at the end of the episode. Quartzite and marble are very common metamorphic rocks. Neither quartzite nor marble has foliation, and yet they're metamorphic rock. Why? Well, we know if we take a sandstone, like a quartz sandstone, and we add a bunch of temperature and pressure, we're going to take the quartz sandstone and convert it or change it into a metamorphic rock called quartzite. And if we take a limestone, remember the one that fizzes with acid, and if we add temperature and pressure to the limestone, we get a marble couple quick words. How do you tell the difference then between a quartz sandstone and a quartzite? It's a texture thing. With the quartz sand grains, you can actually see the sand grains sitting there next to each other. They're glued together. You could, it feels like sandpaper. With a hand lens, you can see the individual quartz sand grains. That's a quartz sandstone, sedimentary. But a quartzite, metamorphic, is really a totally different experience by looking at it. A quartzite is each of those former sand grains that have been squished or crushed with the increasing pressure. Take a, take, a sand, take a bunch of sand grains and basically put them in a vise and shatter each of the quartz sand grains until you get this kind of crushed sand appearance. That's the best way I can describe the look of a quartzite. If you have a rock that you know is a quartzite, study the look of those crushed sand grains very well because regardless of the color of the quartzite, whether it's a purple or a pink, there's all these beautiful quartzites. I really love quartzite, white quartzite. It's that crushed sand grain look. I don't know how else to describe it for you. That's a dead giveaway for quartzite. Finally, marble, raw marble, not polished marble on a a staircase or a fireplace or a statue, but raw marble uh, looks very different than what people visualize for marble. 
raw marble, like geologic marble, like the marble that you find out in the desert, looks like a white granite. It's got big, beautiful, phanaritic textures, and the minerals have beautiful cleavage planes, but when you really look carefully at the marble and play with it, you realize those minerals are soft. That's a mineral called calcite. Calcite has beautiful three cleavage planes that are um, 75 degree corners to them. But the point is, uh, marble is limestone sedimentary that has been heated up and cooked. And the condition is such where in, in case of crushing the minerals, this time we're actually creating new environments for the calcite minerals to grow in that metamorphic condition. So what's the difference between a limestone and a marble? Chemically, they're the same. But the limestone has, remember, teeny tiny minerals you can't see. And the only way to know it's a limestone is to have some hydrochloric acid available. Marble, you can see with a hand lens because those calcites have grown nice and big with the high temperature and pressure conditions. And maybe the marble will react with hydrochloric acid, but not a guarantee since that metamorphism was quite strong with some marbles. Wow, that was a lot of information in 38 minutes or whatever it's been. Um, No idea if that one is going to sink in and work for you. Uh, But if you have had experience identifying rocks and minerals, maybe you could keep up with that and it makes sense to you. I did it just quickly off the top of my head because that's the spiel I've given every quarter for 30 plus years. Some quarters, I'm kind of bored with it, to be honest with you, but uh, it rolls right off the tongue if you do it enough. And that's true with anything, isn't it? The more you do it, The more experience you have, the more natural it feels. Podcast listener, I thank you for listening to this Igneous Rock Identification Etc. episode, and we'll look for you next time. Goodbye.